Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined this week not only by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon, but by um, our friend, Pillar Contributing Editor, and uh, all-around, well, I think good guy, all-around good good guy, and um, a data scientist, if you will, uh, Pillar Contributing Editor, Brendan Hodge. Brendan, how are you doing? Doing pretty well, though. Are any of us truly good? <laughs> it's true. Only God is good, Brendan. That's very that's 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 true. And all around, uh, a, a sinner really in the hands of an angry God is Brendan Hodge, but he's here nonetheless. Yeah, but he makes us look smart, and as far as I'm concerned, that is the greatest good that exists. <laughs> yeah, and I would agree with that. Um, you know, cutting edge kind of data reporting is a cool thing that um, really Brendan makes us smart because what Brendan is doing at the Pillar is something that nobody else is really doing in Catholic journalism which is, um, uh, you know, on all kinds of subjects, going to the numbers and um, actually sort of trying to figure out what's happening beyond our perceptions or anecdotes and what, uh, you know, what we can sort of glean from statistical uh, statistical and demographic realities. Brendan, do you think that's a fair way to summarize and encapsulate what it is that you are good at? Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it. And uh, it's been a fascinating challenge trying to do data journalism on Catholic topics since, uh, after all, the core focus of Catholicism is that which you cannot really address from data. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, you, you and I have been talking, or you, Ed and I have been talking a little bit about that lately, because you've been sort of saying that the more you dig into kind of um, statistical work on various subjects, the more you sort of see a kind of um, a, a sort of metathesis in the middle, but one that probably can't be proven with data. Um, is that is that fair? Yeah, I, I think that when you look at what data can tell us about Catholicism, I mean, you've really got two key areas that you can look at easily. Eh, let's call it three. So you can look at uh, survey data. So you can look at what Catholics say about what they believe, uh, what they say that they do. And so you can get a sense of what Catholics are doing out there in the world. You can look at demographic data, so you can look at where there are Catholics, where the number of Catholics are growing, where the number of Catholics is shrinking. Um, and then you can look at financial data, so you can look at how the church as an institution is doing from a, a financial point of view, whether it's paying its bills, whether it's saving enough money to cover pensions for its priests and lay uh, employees and so on. So all of these things are, are interesting that can give you a sense of the general health of the church as a, as a population uh, in terms of what people say about themselves and as an institution. But what they can't really get at is, is the church fulfilling its mission to uh, bring the truth of Christ's revelation to humanity and, and provide grace through the sacraments? I, I think you hint at it in that when the church is doing those core things, you should see a church which is thriving in other ways as well, because Catholics will support a church which is active in that way. There will be more people converting to a church which is acting that way. But um, you can't actually measure those key things in terms of data. So we're always kind of working around the borders. But the, the thing that is nice about it is, I mean, um, there's an awful lot of just kind of opinion journalism out there. And of course, everyone has an opinion. And a lot of those have to do with interpreting what people think is going on in the world. And the nice thing about doing data journalism is you have this very hard check on what your opinions may be. I mean, we've gone into several of these projects with a clear idea of what we thought the data might show and had our hypothesis completely disproven. So there's always that check on 
on our uh, hubris. Yeah, it seems to me that's sort of one of the most helpful services that um, that kind of you you provide, and also one of the more surprising ones is that um, it would seem it is usually the case. It ought to be the case, I suppose, that um, before people start opining on various things, they ought to um, know the facts. And you know, frankly, that's <laughs> it's not always the case that that the one precedes the other. But um, the sort of baseline that you're providing, just by sort of digging into the numbers on these things, is giving. Um, is giving a sort of common denominator up, you know, after which people can sort of think about, well, what's the best way to address this? Or, you know, wh- what might this kind of tell us? And that's where people sort of, you know, bring in the, um, their own theological perspectives or whatever. But um, it's not often the case that the church is working from a common denominator, sort of factually, when she's sort of talking through problems. And um, and it seems to me that that's a helpful sort of place place to begin. I would hope so. I mean, there are there are times when the church seeks to inform itself about what's going on in the world and among the faithful. I mean, I guess in some sense, whatever synodality is, that is that is part of what uh, the church is trying to do there is understand how the faithful are living out their faith and um, what what problems they have, what uh, things they're working with. But it's um, if you're going to do that, it seems to me in any kind of fully informed way, you need to actually understand what's happening out there in the world, not just say, hey, we found five people and those five people have all told us exactly what we wanted to hear and therefore we need to go do exactly what we wanted to do in the first place, which is often what people do when they say that they're going to consult the facts. Yeah, that's right. I I find that, I don't know, if you find that with reporting a story that's not a data-driven story, it's like, you know, um, it is really easy with a kind of story in which you're going to um, find kind of anecdotal evidence for the thing that you're talking about um, to shade that, whether consciously or or unconsciously, on sort of where you where you want it to go, right? I mean, so like the plural of anecdotes is not data. Is, is that what they say, Brendan? Is that how that aphorism goes? Uh, yeah, the, they do say that. Though obviously, if you got a really large number of anecdotes, you would have data. So I, I guess I have a mixed relationship with that, but. I mean, the what the kind of quick semi fact based story formula that people work with is uh, take your thesis that you want to prove, find three people that support it, quote all three of those in the article. And now you've just shown that there's lots of evidence out there for what you're doing. But of course, you can find three people who are experiencing almost anything. Right. Just that when you're reading a 800 page story, 800 word story that uh, is going to uh, seem like a lot of evidence. Yeah, and if you want to seem balanced, then you can get one person who disagrees with you, throw them in, and uh, and you know suddenly it looks like you've sort of told all sides of a story. But it's true that when you're not working, when you're working off of when you're when you're kind of asserting something or trying to encapsulate a problem, and you're working apart from um, numbers or research, you know there is a danger always, and not not only a danger because I think it's capitalized on, but there's the possibility of effectively just sort of creating the reality that you you know wish to convey. Um, in, in your selection. It seems like in data reporting, that would be more difficult. But I don't know, maybe, in fact, how you ask the questions and things like that um, make so much of a difference that it's, you know, the data can in certain ways say anything, too. Well, I mean, th- this is this is the ultimate aphorism, isn't it? There are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And statistics, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think and we found this when we when we were doing the... Okay, what's the full and cool title that you gave it, JD? Because I always just want to call it the Pillar Poll, but I know that the there's the Religious some... Attitudes and Practice Survey, the RAP Survey. That's it, the RAP Survey. Um, when we were putting that together, that I mean, sounds the, cool. The three of us, I remember, had a very long conference call 
I was at a baseball stadium, as it happens at the time. But still, um, we had a very Say long... It. You were at a baseball stadium hanging out with that baseball guy, with Trevor no. Williams. No, I wasn't at a, no, I wasn't at a baseball stadium hanging out with Trevor. I was at a minor league stadium. Um, oh, okay. It was dollar beer night. I had work to do. Nice. Uh, but, you know, what? the thing that we were sort of obsessing about more than anything else was not, you know, what's the kind of information we want to capture, but how are we going to phrase these questions? Because that is potentially going to move the needle on what we get back very yeah to a great extent um and i mean you can you can you can find the appearance of proof for nearly anything i think depending on how you ask a question or depending on who you ask or you know how open ended you leave something but i think one of the interesting things about the church is and i think this is something we've been talking about in the last couple of days amongst ourselves as we're you know sort of looking at um you know other data projects that could come online in the future is it's hard enough to find data that is universally collected and available about the church yeah. in, for example, just one country like the United States. Um, you know, every diocese kind of you know, keeps their financial records in, in their own way, reports them not necessarily in the same way. You know, th there's very little that you can read across through every diocese, um, apart from sort of headline figures that Rome makes them produce, like, you know, number of people going to mass or number of parishes or stuff like that. Um, and even if we can find that, usually what we get is just a really interesting question that jumps out. Like, for example, we were talking the other day about, uh, you know, active versus retired priests by as a, as a headcount in different dioceses, and, you know, which ones have a sort of, you know, uh, an up and coming young population, at least enough to offset the number of priests retiring and which ones are sort of getting upside down on the actuary table, that sort of stuff. Um, and immediately that sort of led to five other questions about, you know, well, the diocese that are doing better, why are they doing better? Do they have more seminary vocations? Where are those seminary vocations coming from? Are they homegrown? Are they coming from other parts of the world? And then Is on the other side, questions about delayed retirement, right? Are there places that exactly. are, are rural places more likely to see guys continue in ministry beyond sort of the standard retirement age or have a, just an older retirement age because of uh, effectively the pausty of their, of their priestly situation? Exactly. And so all of this, I mean, it would be great if we had you know, head count of active priests, head count of retirement priests with a nice line item next to each figure saying, you know, how old they are, this, and, you know. how old they are, what the average age is of a priest in the diocese, at what percentage of, um, you know, their, their priests were born in the diocese, for example, or baptized in the diocese you know, things like, but you just, that, that sort of data isn't, isn't there. Or if it is, it's very, very hard to tease it out from any one place, let alone nationally, let alone internationally. Um, and, and I think that's the real challenge of data journalism from, you know, to do with the church is the things that matter in the church are important. And we do collect data on like numbers of baptisms in diocese, numbers of weddings, funerals, you know, sort of the a thumbnail of the sacramental life of a diocese. We're, we're pretty good about capturing that and tracking that. But, you know, the, the churches, and we always talk about this, um, we always talk about this in the podcast. The church is its own society. It is, you know, its own there's world. A, by the way, just real quick, there's a, if you're a regular Pillar podcast listener, there's a decent drinking game to be had by taking a shot every time Ed says perfect society. And, I didn't uh, say perfect be, society. No, but you're, <laughs> you're getting there. I didn't say it. <laughs> you're getting there, buddy. I, I was warming up to it. <laughs> um, no, but the church is its own society. But at the same time, the... It's not, it's not a society which exists in a bubble. It's a society that's overlaid on top of our wider human society. So the reason why people 
move in large numbers between cities and rural populations, between one country and another regionally, you know, that definitely impacts the life of the church at a local level and at a national level. But the causes of that aren't always apparent from the data that the church collects, because that's something that's responsive to external factors. So, you know, the economic migration is something that will be reflected in the data that the church collects and in the societal life of the church, but we won't necessarily have a ready mechanism for recognizing it when it happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I think that's precisely what we see because in some sense the the church data is overlaid on top of um, demographic data about, especially in a country like the U.S. that has kind of a, a mixed population. So you have parts of the country which was, were historically very Catholic, parts of the country which were not historically very Catholic. So you'll have something like, um, to sort of crib off some uh, analysis I was doing recently, uh, if you looked at the Diocese of Scranton, the number of Catholics in the Diocese of Scranton has gone down rapidly over the last 30 years, as have their vocations, as have their number of active priests. And then you look at a diocese like Atlanta, and you see that Atlanta is growing rapidly. It has more Catholics, it has more vocations, it has more active priests. And uh, at one level, you might think, oh, well, this means that they're doing something really well in Atlanta, and they're doing it less well in Scranton, and, and that must be what's going on. But if you step back and look at sort of the broader U.S. population trends, what you see is that you had Scranton, which was a heavily Catholic area, um, and it's but it's also an area which is depopulating, so that people just overall are moving out of Scranton, and the people who are still there are mostly older, and people are moving into Atlanta, so that's a area which not only is the total population growing a lot, but Atlanta was a, a city which had virtually no Catholics when you go back to 1960. It had a very low percentage of Catholics. Um, and now it's getting to be more of a normal percentage of Catholics because Atlanta is getting to be such a mega city. It's had huge numbers of people move in from other parts of the country, and it's coming to kind of an average percentage of Catholics compared to other parts of the country. So as we have these shifts out of historically Catholic areas into new mega cities, kind of some of these overall things that are happening within the U.S. end up affecting the face of the church as we see it. And so in order to try to assess kind of the health of the church regionally in different parts of the country and things that might be going on there, you kind of have to pick that apart from the demographic flows of the U.S. as a whole, which which I find fascinating because I'm strange that way, but you know. And, and how do you do that? What are some of the things that you find as you start to sort of p pick that apart a little bit? What are some of the things that you find have been sort of key indicators of the vitality of a parish or of a diocese. I mean, the, sort of the most commonly sort of cited statistic broadly is kind of vocations. And and, uh, and so I think, you know, it's probably true that priestly vocations is a good indicator of the vitality of a diocese. If you, if you look at it by, you know, over a certain number of Catholics. So if you look at it as vocations per 10,000 Catholics or whatever. But what, what are some of the other kind of indicators that suggest the vitality of a diocese or a parish? So... Again, when, when you're working with data, you're kind of limited in that you can only look at these things which are, which are ancillary to the core mission of the church. But if you were going to just track the vitality of the, the life cycle of Catholics in a diocese or in a parish, uh, I, I think the basic way you can look at it in the things that we have actually collected in statistics is you look at baptisms, you look at marriages, and you look at 
um, registered Catholics and, and deaths. And what you can get from that is a sense of not only how many registered Catholics there are, so what is the, the population of Catholics? Is it going up? Is it going down? But if you have a parish or a diocese where you have a lot of Catholic funerals going on, but you have very few baptisms and uh, marriages, it indicates one of two things, uh, or maybe a combination of the two things. Yeah, it indicates either that your younger people are falling away from the church, and so they're not getting married in the church, they're not having their children baptized in the church. And so what you have is an aging church in which older parishioners are receiving funerals, but younger people are not participating in the life of the church. Or it indicates a demographic movement where those younger people have up and moved to some other place. And so what you have left is grandma and grandpa who are still going to the parish that they've been in for 30 years, but their children and grandchildren are now living in a new suburban parish in some other city. And so now you have the family kind of fractured across multiple entities within the church. You've got the, the aging congregation in one place, you've got the younger congregation in another place. And you can put some of that together by looking at census data on the ages of people who are moving into an er the area where the parish or the diocese is and see, do you have a large influx of younger people from other areas? What's the average age in different areas? So you can try to start to pull that apart a little bit and understand how those factors are working out. Because otherwise you do have this sense of, oh, well, I, I saw this thriving suburban parish and had lots of young families with lots of young children. Obviously, whatever this parish is doing is right. And I saw this other parish where it's only old people, and obviously whatever they are doing is wrong. And that could be true, but it could also just be that that's where the people are. Well, and what exactly what you were saying, Brendan, about you know having to look at wider indicators because you know there, if you look at a, the demographics of a diocese, and you know, like you said, the the sort of headline things you look at are baptisms, weddings, funerals. Say, well, there's not a lot of baptisms, but there are a lot of funerals, or that number is, you know, way out of proportion. And it can give the appearance of um, a, a demographic decline that's really, really um, problematic. But then again, you know, I bet you there are probably two or three Florida dioceses, certainly um, parishes there, which, uh, you know, you see lots of people moving in in retirement and they're not having children <laughs> when they get there. Um, but you know, they may eventually need a funeral there and that you can get a sort of false positive test for the general demographic trend of a place by that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whatever diocese houses, like the village, do you guys know the villages? It's like this very large kind of, um, development in Florida. That's the large, it's the villages. I think zip code is the oldest zip code in America or it's county is the oldest county in America because it's this very, very, very large retirement or 55 plus kind of community. Um, that's super interesting to read about. But I, yeah, I suspect their parishes are far more in the funeral business than in the um, baptism or, or wedding business just by, by that demographic reality. Exactly. Could we talk about that, Brendan, kind of in a big picture? One thing that I'm curious about, how you think people can par parse apart or whether you think it's even possible. You know, last week, Ed and I talked on the show about the Second Vatican Council and, and what it is and uh, why it happened and how people understand and these kinds of things. I don't know if you listened to the show and if you didn't, you know, whatever. Um, but... Um, you know, people, I, I noticed that when people talk about the Second Vatican Council and demographics, you know, they, they, people who are critical of the council often do it in a way, you know, do it in a way where they, they point out that um, 
there has been sort of widespread Catholic religious disaffiliation since 1965 and that the council ended in 1965. And um, the sort of um, implication is, you know, see, um, there is a correlation between the changes of the Second Vatican Council and widespread religious disaffiliation. And I, I think it's possible that that is true, but I don't think it's demonstrated by simply kind of that correlation that is true. And I wonder if you think there is a way to look at things kind of in that in that big of a picture to sort of adjust for religious disaffiliation in other denominations or an overall re- religious disaffiliation rate to like measure, is there a way to kind of measure in a time of secular, widespread secularization, religious disaffiliation, the fall of the sexual re- revolution, have, you know, these things which are sometimes attributed has the sort of Novus Ordo actually sort of additionally contributed to religious disaffiliation or not? Is there a way even to kind of pick that out well enough to measure it? So I think the basic way that you do this is you you recognize that Vatican II was a cultural, liturgical, theological kind of shock or event, if if you want to use a more neutral term. But it, it was a, it was a massive change within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but it was localized within the Roman Catholic Church. So you wouldn't expect, for instance, that Lutherans would stop going to their services because the Catholics had Vatican II. Right, right. So what you would Unless do Vatican is Vatican II was attracting a lot of Lutherans. That's right. <laughs> Unless the Lutherans all became Catholic. Vatican II, Vatican II. <laughs> okay, go ahead, sir. Now I'm waiting to hear what the next verse of the song is. Wait till you see what the Vatican do. I, I don't know. I, I used to. Did you guys used to know that song? I used to know a song whose refrain was something like Vatican II, Vatican II. And I feel like it was the sort of thing that people sung on the third floor of Caldwell Hall at the Catholic University of America, where you and I went to um, uh, Canon Law School. Does that sound at all familiar to you? No, I, I, my, my class at um, Canon Law School was very much a Vatican rag class. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, boy, that should be our outro music today, or at least in the show notes. But You know, um, we can do that. Tom Lehrer um, made all of his music copyright-free. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's cool. Um, Brendan, do you, do you know what we're talking about? I do, yes. Nice, cool. Well, you listeners, too, will know what we're talking about if you take a look at the show notes of this episode. But uh, with that said, and I don't remember the, how that song went, uh, sorry, Brendan, apart from the possibility of mass conversions, of Lutherans to Catholicism after the Second Vatican Council? Yeah, so w- what you would do is you would look at other religious denominations and see whether there was a similar falling away of religious practice in the 60s and 70s to what the Catholic Church experienced. Um, and, I mean, broadly speaking, what you see is that, yes, uh, throughout Europe and um, America, there was a similar falling away from religious practice in uh, various Protestant uh, communions and among the Orthodox, that there was there was a general decline in religious practice going on during that period, which affected other religious communities just as it did the Catholic Church. Um, now you had some differences in how that played out, um, and you do have an overall shift, which is that if if you were and I'll stick with the U.S. because this is where I I know this better without consulting anything. But uh, within the U.S., what you see during this period is that mainline uh, Protestant denominations just cratered during that same period, that Catholicism declined to a lesser extent, but still declined a fair amount, and that kind of evangelical, non-denominational, Pentecostal kind of Christianity uh, remained healthier. And so part of what you have, and we saw this, for instance, in the, the Pillar Survey, 
was uh, that... Sorry, the RAP uh, if you, survey. We have to call it the RAP survey, right, or J.D. The, gets the very upset. The religious attitudes and practices uh, <laughs> survey is that if you look at people who were born in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and uh, were born into Catholic families but are now no longer Catholic, the largest single place where they went is into evangelical Christianity. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people anecdotally have seen that play out within their families. That's that's a dynamic that people are pretty familiar with. So there there seems like there were sort of two overall factors that were going on in the U.S. and to, to my knowledge within sort of Europe and, and sort of the Western world more broadly in, in that same 60s or the 80s period is that you, on the one hand, had just overall decline in religious practice. Um, and we talk now about, you know, that continuing with rise of the nuns and so on. Uh, but uh, but also when you look across the, the spectrum of religious practice that you had kind of your your more staid mainline Protestant groups declining the most, Catholics kind of in the middle, and then evangelicals declining the least. And uh, so I think that points to two things. One, that there was a overall shift um, in religious practice in Western culture through that period of the 60s and 70s, which kind of fit with the religious turmoil, with kind of the hangover from World War II and the breaking of Christendom that had arguably kicked off back with World War I and so on. So you have kind of the, the overall 20th century shift. And then you also have this shift from from the mainline Protestant uh, groups and from the Catholic Church, you see those groups being more affected and you see this more um, sort of amorphous, more emotional, more uh, Pentecostal group of religious traditions, which seemed to be weathering the storm better and in some cases actually growing. Uh, and so you've got kind of two two dynamics going on there on top of each other at the same time. One thing that I've wondered about, kind of, there are a couple things I've wondered about related to that. But since you just mentioned Pentecostals, I'll wonder, I'll, I'll ask about this. Is um, Brendan, you and I know each other because we went to Stumville at the same time, and um, and I bring that up first of all because that's awesome, and uh, we made a good choice. And um, and second of all, I bring that up because we essentially participated in a kind of niche Catholicism, right? I mean, at the time that we went to Stumville, it was still sort of largely the university was still sort of largely charismatic or largely influenced by the charismatic renewal. I think probably my experience tells me probably more than is sort of the case as a defining characteristic of the university's culture now, although I could be wrong about that. But I have a question about the university of Steubenville's culture or rather sure. an anecdote, which I'd like you both to respond to and tell me what to make of this. I was discussing, and I'll get back to my serious question in just one moment. Yeah. I, I was discussing as I so often do with my wife, um, Mr. And Mrs. JD and Kate Flynn, and, you know, while we were dissecting their life choices and their relationship and, you know, things like this, which is what we do. Over you guys drink. do that, too. Yeah. This is, what, and, this is how we unwind at the end of a day. And do you find that if you want to get out – sometimes I find that if I want to get out of the doghouse a little bit, I tell um, in Ed and Rachel's story in which Ed has been in some ways far kind of – far far more of a workaholic than I, far – uh, less sensitive than I, and and then conclude with them. Can you sort of believe that guy? I mean, do you use the same technique that I do? Uh, yeah, although I will often say, I, I will often sort of reverse the flow slightly and say, well, you you think you have it bad? Think of Mrs. Flynn, who has three children <laughs> that is, and is being neglected with equal vigor by her husband. <laughs> Um, <laughs> sorry, this is this, this is a digression. The actual thing I wanted to raise was really amongst our, in our attempts to sort of break down the psychohistory of the Flynn household, um, I'm 
I mentioned in passing that you and your wife had met at Steubenville. And the question Rachel asked was, well, did JD's wife go to Steubenville or was she sent to Steubenville? And I didn't really understand what she meant at I'm the time. I'm surprised Rachel understood that. I, 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 well, I mean, she has... Because she, she's English. She, yeah, she's, she's a very perceptive woman, more so than, um, than I am. I'm not a perceptive woman at all. And, and, and so I was thinking about this, and actually it's an interesting thing, because educational choices, you guys, a lot... Of, and the reason I brought this up is because both of you went to Steubenville. I know a lot of people, mostly through JD, who went to Steubenville, and... It, it it is interesting, I think, to you know what we're talking about in a more wide conversation about um, the sort of demographic direction of the church. Uh, things like educational choices are family influenced, and it can be a very interesting indicator, but hard to capture from a data point of view. Of well, did you pick a college like Steubenville or like I don't know Ave Maria or? You know, a, a school that is very intentionally Christendom, Catholic. Thomas Aquinas College. Thomas Aquinas College. Um, that, those couple of colleges in New Hampshire that keep changing their names. Yeah, I, we know. The Catholic mean, University yeah. of America. Well, Places that okay. are very intentional about their Catholic identity. Huh. Um, whether a person seeks that out for themselves at the age of, say, 18, um, or they're steered that way by their family, will tell you a lot about that person. But it's very hard to capture from a data point of view. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, the perception, at least in our time at Steubenville, Brendan, is that People who correct me and correct me if you think I'm wrong. People who are sent to Steubenville were sort of more likely to be, you know, whose parents sent them to Steubenville because their parents were very religious. Were more likely to be sort of in the. Um, <laughs> the You're going to bring up Lordos again, still, aren't you? Was, what's that? You're going to bring up Lordos again, aren't no, you? No, I'm not going to bring up Lordos. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to bring up Lordos. Um, but we're more likely to bring it in the sort of party crowd than in the kind of. You know, LARPing crowd or the or the or the oh, really? crowd or something like that. Um, you know that the people who are at least it was often my perception that people who are sent to Steubenville, are, and there was a sort of stereotype that people who are sent to Steubenville are more likely to sort of be in the in the in the rough crowd. But I don't know if there's any sort of tracking of whether people who chose to go to Steubenville or somewhere like that, or or their parents sent them, what that means for the longevity of the practice of their faith. What What do you think, Brendan? I really don't know. It would be interesting. Um... In the, the completely anecdotal sense, one of the things that has surprised me looking back is that like any highly religious community, Steubenville spent a lot of time trying to consciously divide itself into sheep and goats. Uh, <laughs> and that uh, uh, looking uh, looking back uh, 10 or 20 years later, you realize that all these quadrupeds were very, very similar. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely, absolutely right. Do you remember the gadfly? It was a kind of alternative press. Uh, it was a, it was a it was a sort of independent alternative to the troubadour. Yeah, which, uh, that was after the concourse of the discourse because there was there was yes, a previous. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes, it yes it was. But the fact that even the campus sort of supported two sort of warring, um, you, you know, sort of warring publications with different articulations of what it meant to be a good Catholic kind of points <laughs> right to what you what you have to say. So, um, sorry, Ed, was there a question there? I, an unanswerable question. I, th- th- this for me is the unifying theme of um, data in Catholic journalism is every time we think we have a, a piece of data which shows something interesting, it actually just begs four other questions. Yeah. And, and, you know, to that point, you know, sort of, as I say, the perception of kids whose parents sort of sent them to Steubenville, at least sort of around my in my in my household, um, the perception of kids whose parents sent them to Steubenville is that they're more likely to be kind of in the in the you know party crowd, as it were. But I wonder in the long term if, in fact, given that they had the sort of family supports that the data suggests 
are more likely to indicate adult practice of Catholicism if in the long term, more of them actually end up practicing Catholicism into, you know, in, in, longer into adulthood or, um, you know. With Were the Euro trash party people more likely to stay Catholic than the hobbits? It's, it's, <laughs> it's actually an interesting question. <laughs> you have, and you have, um, you have succinctly summarized both the question and elements of the culture. Yes, that is, uh, that's true. Um, uh, I always need my... to figure out how to set that question on the next survey. Were you in college? Eurotrash? Hobbit? Well, I think <laughs> if we surveyed Steubenville alumni, Brendan, I realized that if you didn't go to Steubenville, maybe you don't care about this, but meh. Uh, I think if we surveyed Steubenville alumni, Brendan, you could learn, you could sort of do that by asking people. So if you go to Steubenville, there are these things called households, which are kind of like, um, it's a cross between um, you know, the sort of English public school, you know, kind of house system and uh, and uh, a fraternity in a certain way or sorority. Um and, um, you know, it's a kind of small faith community. I don't think Brennan actually belonged to one, but, they, you know, each of them had their own reputations for being, um, you know, a, a different kind of person. So maybe we could get at that by asking people about their households and then figuring out what the perception of their household was at that time. I don't know. How come you didn't join a household, Brendan? I, I actually was in a household, but the, by the time you knew me, I wasn't very active in it anymore. Oh, what were you? Uh, there was a household called Brothers in the Spirit, which uh, died out shortly after I left. Oh, right. You know that's so funny because my wife and I again, if you don't, if you're not, if you don't According know, according to Ed's schema, it was more of a Hobbit household. Yeah, well, it was a computer science household, wasn't it? Um, yeah, there's some of those. You make fun of me for going to a place that was self-consciously nope. like Harry Potter. <laughs> we're going to have to. Bleed. I was waiting for the Sorting Hat joke, and it never came. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, we're going to have to bleed out this name. Um, but my wife and I were just wondering the other day about. Do you remember? Yeah, he was your household brother. This guy was from Alaska, Ed, and he was he was a real computer science guy. But he worked in a like a salmon cannery in the in the summer and just made like bank in the salmon cannery. And he was super super generous. So sometimes we'd invite him out to out to eat and stuff because he's a cool guy. That's cool. I mean, I th- there's always a certain attraction to sort of Discovery Channel hardest jobs that all seem to take place in Alaska and involve fish. Right. Um, yeah, I, 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 if I have a regret. Um, I would like to have spent, you know, a season in Alaska doing something. I that... really thought you were going to say you wish you'd gone to Steubenville. No. Oh, Lord, no. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh-uh. Okay, but go No, no, I'm fine. I, look, full disclosure, I've, I've taught at Steubenville. I love the school. Sure. I just had the university experience that was right for me at the place I was, place and time in my life that I had. Okay. That's all. Going back to the question that I was Because you were gonna... up at Balil with uh, Lord Peter Whimsey, right? No, I did not go to Oxbridge. Oh, you were you were a couple years after Lord Peter. <laughs> Ed, remember? I just when, wasn't that smart. Ed, remember when we used to drive and then um, sit underneath the tree and eat strawberries and the and, and drink wine and the and Sunday afternoons and then we would drive to your family house and everyone would sort of fight. Okay, and you've weird. gone, you've you've gone, you've gone very remember strange. How your dad You're taking had a this weird to... mistress in Naples and um... oh, for the love of God. <laughs> You've gone from making fun of the fact that my high school is several centuries older than the United States, which is fine. I'll take that on the chin. Um, to Venice, just presuming—that's that, where, that's where your dad was. With the, that I went. The that I not only went to either Oxford or Cambridge, which I didn't, but that I—I I somehow was living in Brideshead revisited. I don't like. I, yeah, you're the Sebastian flight of this story. Well, actually, no, I would just what like to have mean? credit for getting I was us an undergrad on the south <laughs> bank know, know. of <laughs> the Thames in London. Like, I like, no one would call the college I went to a sort of you know Arcadian field. So you're saying instead of thinking Downton Abbey, we should be thinking Eastenders. 
not not quite that. Um, <laughs> I did spend a lot of time in the East End as an undergrad, actually, though. And then remember that time you went to that weird old house and there was just an old lady in her wedding dress? And she was just sitting there and it freaked you out and you ran away. I mean, that was kind of a cool... Uh, oh, no, she was great. And she ended up paying for much of my education. At least I thought she did. <laughs> At least I thought she did. But it turned out it wasn't her in the end. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Brendan, we went to Zoomville, which at that time was you know, largely influenced by the charismatic renewal and was therefore a kind of niche Catholicism. Um, you know, and the reason I bring that up is because um, right now there's a lot of conversation in the church about the extraordinary form and kind of the frequency of uh, mass attendance and, you know, the doctrinal orthodox, you know, the, 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 the idea that a lot of people who go to the extraordinary form say, which is that people who go to the extraordinary form are more likely to be doctrinally orthodox and religiously devout in a number of ways, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I find myself wondering, is that sort of are self-selected niche Catholic groups more likely to have those things in common, you know, overall, or is that an aspect of the sort of one particular community? And is that something that we could study? I do think it's a really interesting question. Um, Of course, the challenge with studying niche Catholicism is that it's small. Uh, So we, we, we did some work on traditional Catholicism in the Latin mass when we did our, our rap survey uh, you can't see I'm holding up my gold chain here, but uh, but our rap survey, uh, religious attitudes and practice. And uh, we were able to get a little bit of information about what percentage of Catholics who go to mass on a weekly basis have ever been to an extraordinary form mass, some things like that. But as you got down to the people who regularly go to the traditional mass, you got down to so few people that we really couldn't say anything with statistical validity because uh, it's just such a small group that the the individual variation overpowers any signal there. Um, And if you were going to examine, say, charismatic Catholicism, you would have to find a way of zeroing in on those groups more precisely while still getting kind of a broad sense of what are charismatic Catholics as a group like, as opposed to this specific mailing list of charismatic Catholics that I stumbled across or something like that. Yeah. So if if we said we want to study kind of, we're interested in whether in, in like some of the, um, some of the diff- statistical differences between sort of niche Catholicism overall and then different iterations of niche Catholicism as compared to people who are not sort of associated with any kind of movement or affiliated with any kind of you know group like that. It wouldn't be sufficient for us to sort of say, okay, we're going to study one kind of charismatic covenant community and, in Ohio or Maryland or something like that, and then one kind of extraordinary form community, we'd have to make sure we were getting a big enough sample of each of them. Yeah, ideally, you'd want to you'd want to study several different communities, and you'd want to be as inclusive and possible as possible in those communities. So, like your ideal would be as if you could pick a a specific um, what is it we're allowed now? Personal parish, I think, is the the term mm-hmm. for for one of these groups that might be having the Latin Mass. It, if you could survey everyone who was going to Mass there you'd get a, a pretty pretty clear sample of what that group was like. And if you could do that at a couple of different ones, uh, that would give you a, a – you'd break down any – you know, if there was one church that was different from another church, you would start to break down some of those variations. And similarly, if you were looking at charismatic communities, you might look at several specific communities. And again, you try to be as inclusive as possible. And the reason I talk about being inclusive is because, for instance – if you uh, if you had an email newsletter that went out to the most involved people in each of those communities and you sent out a link to the people on that newsletter uh, and then maybe a quarter of the people who uh, read the newsletter clicked through and filled out your survey, 
the issue you'd have is now you've got the people who are most enthusiastic to give their opinions out of a subgroup, which is already more, maybe more enthusiastic or more involved and more informed than the broader group as a whole. So you might have a, um, a rather self-selected group. So uh, when we did our religious attitudes and practice survey, uh, the approach that we took was a, a broad brush approach where we had a survey firm that was going out to a existing research panel that they had. People had signed up to do various types of research that was not necessarily religious at all. And then we were asking our questions of anyone in the group who was Catholic or had been brought up Catholic. So that gave us a very broad and representative view of people who were raised Catholic, people who, who currently call themselves Catholic, and and came with kind of the, the things that you see in surveys you would expect with that. Like many of those people did not um, either did not believe in the real presence or did not recognize the form, the phrase <laughs> describing it in order to say that they agreed with it. So it's, which gets you at some of the data problems is you don't know for sure if those people actively disbelieve in the real presence or if when they read a question that says, do you believe? that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And they're reading that thinking, well, wait, is that what the church teaches? Or am I being tricked here? And this is actually not what the church teaches. What should I say? Uh, so that, that way you get a, a nice broad sample and you know it's representative. If you're going to sample a specific niche community, you would just want to try to capture as many as possible of the people in the communities, not just the most involved ones. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. One of the ways that that might challenge a uh, a thought that I've had about the about kind of the church is I, I've said on this show before that it seems to me that um, ecclesial ecclesial movements, things like communion liberation and the neocatechumenal way and open th things which I myself am actually not a, a joiner of um, by by any stretch of the imagination. But I've sort of said on the show before that it seems to me that ecclesial movements prob seem to be where the vitality of the church um, is and may well represent sort of the best model for the church's kind of pastoral ministry and evangelical and catechetical ministry in the future. But it's also possible, I suppose, and this is part of what you're pointing to, that those groups end up just being populated with people who would otherwise be the most active people in their parish anyway, isn't it? Yeah, there are probably two elements of that. Uh, one is that, yes, um, people who join some sort of a Catholic community or movement are going to be people who are willing to show up and join <laughs> a Catholic community or movement. So there, there's a selection process there to where you are, um, you're zeroing in on people who are already willing to do something as opposed to say uh, people who don't even show up to mass above a couple times a year. Those people are mostly not joining uh, movements or specific communities. And uh, so they're selected out of that group. But the other aspect is that once you have people in that group, one of the functions of community and one of the things that I think the church is intended to do as a human community is to guide people into a more active practice of virtue. And so guide people into a more active practice of Catholicism and uh, a greater knowledge of Catholicism in the case of these Catholic movements. So I think Yes, you're probably a bit self-selected, but if, if it is a good movement or a good community, once it's got a handle on those people and is using the hook of human community to keep them connected, you would hope that it is actually teaching those people a deeper spirituality, uh, a, a more active prayer life, a, a greater knowledge of doctrine. And so, um, again, this sort of gets back to the data question. I don't know. Maybe you could look at something along the lines of, people who have recently joined such a community versus people who've been there for a period of time and see if you're seeing kind of a, a growth over time 
but it, it, it would be hard to isolate it from a data point of view. But my, my thought would be is that, yes, there's a, there's a selection bias, but if the community is doing a good job, it should actually be making those people more active and committed Catholics as a result of belonging to the group. But, and, and I mean, here again, this is, you know, one, one question or data point that, you know, you'd, you'd want to look at immediately jumps up with other questions is it's probably true that for people who, um, are moving into a, a movement or a group like the ones we were talking about, uh, would otherwise be the active members of their parish if they're already a practicing Catholic. But, you know, again, a lot will depend on sort of the orientation of that group and its activity in a particular part of the world to actually be missionary, to actually be um, evangelizing. You know, okay, you're not likely to go from completely unchurched guy on the street to Opus Dei numerary, uh, you know, overnight. But if the focus of a lot of these movements is not so much about offering Catholics who are already in the parish attending mass have a sort of baseline active sacramental life and saying, well, here's what we're offering here really is Catholicism squared. Um, but actually facing outward part of the new evangelization, which I think is where a lot of the growth of these things tracks is the era of when we spoke about the new evangelization. Um, I, you know, there's a question about, well, okay, how many, how many of um, the members of these groups are being drawn from otherwise stable, normal parish life versus are being brought into the church, you know, from outside completely. And I, I don't know how we sample that. Or, or not even if they're not making Catholics at the very least, um, br bringing into the life of the church, people who otherwise would aren't practicing the faith. Right. So people who are right, exactly unchurched people rather yeah, than unbaptized yeah, yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. I, I'm going to ask an absurd question, but I, I'm interested. Brendan, if you could ask every Catholic in the United States one question that you thought would yield an interesting data point to work from, what would it be? Assuming a, assuming 100% honesty and 100% response rate, what is the one question that you think would yield the most interesting data to work with? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> you, you don't just have this lurking at the front of your head? I thought this is what kept you awake at night. Is if you I could saw only... the massive blow to the number of questions that I put onto that survey. I mean, <laughs> sticking with one I'm question a... is not my strong suit. I'm going to put a qualifier on there. Let's assume that when you ask this question, you also have everybody's demographic information and information about their general tendency towards religious practice so that you can contextualize what they have to say in the context of generation, mass well, tendency. That's a far tendency. less interesting question. <laughs> I know, but no you context, know that he's going to... But you don't have to have... This is the point, is you're saying 100% response rate with 100% honesty from every Catholic in the United States. Oh, so, so then you actually have, you already know the demographic stuff just by virtue. Yeah. You contextualize it as well as we have data for general context of Catholics in the United States. I guess if I was going to have one one question as... Um, to try to assess sort of the shape of how people's relationship with the church is and, and how much they understand what, what I would think of as the purpose of the church. It would be something along the lines of, um, do you believe that the Catholic church provides you access to, to God's graces um, and that you need those in your life? Because I think that it's, it, in a, it's not the sort of question that gets asked a whole lot. It's not about practice necessarily. Um, I, there, there would maybe still be some issues there with, you know, would people understand the question and interpret it in the way that I might mean it. 
but the the thing that would be interesting to me is um, the the Catholic Church is a institution and a community in the U.S. which has a lot of history, and a lot of people belong to it for a lot of different reasons, and some of those are cultural, familial, historical. And, and the thing that I wish we could understand better and that I, I think would be a health check on how well the church is doing in its mission is to what extent do members of the Catholic Church believe that the Catholic Church does or even is capable of offering them what I would think of as the purpose of the church, which is to put us in touch with God's grace. Yeah, that would be a good, that's a good way of getting at the sort of fundamental question, do you think the church is what she claims to be in a, in a certain way? J.D., do you have a question? Do you know? Well, just since you can't get to that, I mean, um, I, I feel kind of bad because we just sort of dove in here and, you know, for listeners who who, uh, who were hoping for the banter, we haven't gotten to the to the banter yet, but, yeah. Um, uh, apart from that, Brendan, I, it might be interesting, I, I was hoping you might sort of give our listeners a preview of what you're working on now. And then after that, um, I have a game for you. Nobody asked me what question I'd ask. Oh, Fine. okay. What what no, no. You don't no, get to no, know no. Now. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not telling. Oh, I'm not telling. Ed, what I might question... put it on Twitter later. No, I don't want you to put it on Twitter. What question, Ed, if you could ask every Catholic in America a question with 100% response rate? What, no, what honey, you... you always do this. We're no, not, no. Everybody not, wants no. to know. Everybody cares about no. what you do. That. Please. You know what? I'm not, no, it's fine. No, I'm it's not going to beg. Okay. <laughs> Brendan, what are you working on? Um... Uh, the, Go talk the to your friends. I'm working on. You're seething right now. What are you working? What do you want to ask, Ed? What do you want to ask everybody? I don't actually have anything. Oh, this is. <laughs> All right, Brendan. What are you working on? Um, I, I'm working on a couple of pieces at the moment. Uh, one of them is taking a look at uh, retired priests. Uh, so, if we think about the population of clergy in in the american church uh we know that we used to have a lot more priests than we do now and that a lot of the priests that we do have are older uh we know about the annual uh collection for the retirement fund for the religious and uh i, I want to understand both sort of how how big a portion of our priests in the u.s are retired and how well are our diocese set up to take care of them with the pensions that they have for taking prayer for priests, because not only does the decreasing number of Catholics and decreasing number of priests suggest that that might be an issue, but if you just think about pension funds in general and the way the economy has changed over the last 40 years, pensions are, are a problem for a lot of institutions, and, and the church tends to have money problems more than some others. Um, so taking a look at that and uh, also doing a kind of general demogra Catholic demographics piece on Europe, um, where uh, we, we had some of the densest Catholic populations in the world uh, and where most Catholics were when you go back uh, 100 years or more and uh, where it seems like even more than the U.S., we're accelerating into kind of a post-Christian world. So taking a look at what that looks like. there. You said to me the other day, for, first of all, that priest pension thing is extremely important because um, a lot of dioceses are in um, do have a, a serious priest pension liability and they have to make kind of make up that liability. The, the, the liability itself is often misunderstood because it's effectively, if you had to pay out everything right now, you know, that you owe, that you will owe, you know, could you do it? And the answer is often no. Now that's because younger priests are going to contrib continue contributing to the system, but it's like social security and, and, and you get deeper and deeper kind of into the hole if you don't, if you're not feeding the, feeding the, the, the liability in the same way that it's growing. Um, is that right? 
Yes. Uh, so from what I've what I've found so far, uh, pension funds in dioceses are they're fed by both current contributions from from priests who are paying in, and then also they have a kind of lump sum of invested capital that they're using to pay out of. So it, it has to do with how much investment have they built up in in order to pay out from the fund, and then also how many priests are paying in. And a lot of this comes down to whether dioceses are growing in terms of their number of priests or not. So if you have a diocese where more than half of the priests are retired, and there are dioceses where more than half of the priests are retired, it's going to be a lot harder to stay solvent than if you've got 20% of your priests retired. Sure. Yeah. Um, Brendan, you said the other day, something that I thought was interesting, which is that you said you felt like kind of all the data work that you have been doing kind of points to something in the middle, which you haven't quite put your finger on and which probably data won't demonstrate, but you said it all, all of the, all of the things you've been working on point in one way or another, or pieces of a whole that says that um, the church is most, the metrics by which we measure the church tend to be most sort of um, uh, positive in places where sort of Christ is proclaimed and at the center of the life of the church and, and less so in, in other places. Is that right? I mean, is that, is that what you were trying to say, what you were getting at the other day? Um, Certainly, that would be, yes, that is what I was trying to get at. I mean, that would be my hypothesis in terms of what we would see um, in the church. Um, so it, we did an article about the church in Africa um, a couple weeks ago. And the one of the things that was interesting to me there is not only is Africa just demographically a growing continent, but it sounds like from from the quotes that I, that I was able to get from, from the um, – from the reports from the church in Africa, it really sounds like it is a place where there is a vibrant and growing belief, which is personal to people and which they see as, as central to their lives and their relationship with God. Um, and I, that seems to fit with the growth. I think that's also what we see in some of these intentional communities, whether it's charismatic Catholicism or traditional Catholicism, um, some of these movements like Opus Dei, these are groups where people have a clear uh, reason for doing what they're doing, and they believe that their practice of Catholicism is bringing them in touch with Christ. Um, and it seems like one of the things which leads to institutional decline is where the church becomes a thing being done for its for its own sake, where it is more institutional, where it is not seen as central to people's lives, it is not really seen as a means for connection with Christ, it's seen as a means for celebrating life events and getting together with the community or, or just sort of a background to certain parts of life. If, if that's all the church is, then you're going to see it decline the way a lot of other institutions have declined. As much as that makes sense to me, and theologically it seems necessary to me that the place where, um, you know, the, Christ who is alive in the incarnation is, is present, the church would have vitality. There's also a way in which data, looking at the data can and I wonder what you both think about kind of like a how how to avoid this looking at the data or or thinking about the church in these ways and and I see this in different Catholic communities can engender a kind of prosperity gospel um technocracy actually a way in which sort of like well, if we just do the magic bullet, the church will thrive and um and that both sort of suggests well you know God will kind of um god God will kind of bless us because we've done x, y or z, and that will mean sort of demonstrable, you know, demonstrable sort of signs of vitality in various kinds. And and it also could just mean like, we look at this in a technocratic way, whereby we have these sort of series of levers. And if we pull the right levers, then we'll get success. I mean, how, how do we kind of um, both look at data and avoid those, um, those tendencies, do you think? 
Well, I mean, I think you, the reason there is the tendency is because it works. I mean, did you guys see the the Wall Street Journal piece earlier this week on um, decline the, of the church in the, Brazil, yeah. the relative rise of evangelical Protestantism in Brazil versus the decline of Catholicism? I mean, a lot of that is down to prosperity gospel stuff. Um, you know that there, there's no there's no clear line drawn in the data that I've seen between evangelical Protestantism generally and specifically what we would call prosperity gospel um, evangelicalism. But that does seem to be a big factor in, for example, the growth of um, evangelical Protestantism in places like Brazil. And the reason for that is simple. It's not that they're evangelizing particularly well from a Christian perspective. that If you promise people money, you'll get a response among people who really want it. Um, people in desperate life conditions want a solution to the practical life conditions they have. And you can, um, you can, you can pretty much bank on a, on a solid response to that across the board. Um, and it, you know, I mean, to be clear, it's not that I think that that's silly or sorted or human. I mean, it's, it's charlatanry if practiced by a Christian as a form of evangelization to say, you know, donate here and you'll, God will make you rich. That's bad. But the impulse in the people, I think, is there and it it's um it's a basic impulse of natural religion which is that the circumstances of one's life are not in one's control and you understand instinctively intuitively that there is a god who is in control and you want to somehow you know get get into a relationship with him where he'll give you what you want and need now what the church does and prosperity gospel preaching does not is to say, no, what the church offers, what God is promising, what is on offer is eternal life. And if you've received that, then that changes how you're able to live the circumstances of your life now. Um, so, so how does the church avoid falling into sort of the prosperity gospel technocratic trap of, we have to just see higher donations, higher, you know, numbers of people in the pews, that kind of thing is, I think the only real test is, you know, data, about the church tracking demographics in the church, looking at all of the stuff they've been talking about is fiercely interesting. And it does a great job in telling us, I think, um, who the church is, what the church is, who's there in different parts of the world. But I don't think it's ever a barometer of success. You know, the church can be going bankrupt and be fulfilling its mission with incredible charisma and vigor and zeal for the gospel. Um, and the reverse can be true. The church can be fabulously wealthy and totally institutionally stable and be doing an absolutely garbage job of announcing the gospel. Um, so I think it's important not to confuse interesting information and a, um, a desire to understand the sort of demographic reality of the church in a certain place or time with assuming that numbers equal success, because it's not, you know, in the end, as Christ just said, many are called, few are chosen. You know, this is not a numbers game. It's not about um, getting as many people in the door of the church, giving them the water and saying, okay, now you're Catholic, you are demographically Catholic, we get to count you. Um, because if, if that's the case, um, you know, then, then you just load the fire hoses with holy water and baptize everyone and, you know, you can, you can make the numbers do whatever you want them to do. Uh, but, you know, the numbers aren't success and that's the thing. Nowhere in the history of the church has the church ever said we are we are after a quantifiable goal. We're not. We're we're here just for the mission to preach Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. That's all we got. Yeah, 
no, I, I, I agree with everything Ed said. And, and I think that <laughs> the sense in which those numbers are an imperfect measure is shown by how quickly they can reverse. Uh, so, I mean, we, we got on one of our riffs about demographics talking about kind of the 1960s, 1970s reversals in the church. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why people are still trying to come up with explanations for why we saw those sudden reversals is because it is easy to look at 1950s and early 1960s U.S. Catholicism and see it as some kind of a golden age where the pews were full and there were a lot of young families and everyone was feeling very excited about being Catholic and having a Catholic president and things like this. And they weren't look, but the subsequent events suggest that there was a basic emptiness in a lot of what was going on there because a lot of the people who then proceeded to leave the pews, a lot of the priests who proceeded to lead people astray, a lot of the abuse that was going on, a lot of these people were coming out of that preconcilio church. They did not come from nowhere there was clearly an edifice that was not as solid as it looked in the U.S. 50s and 60s Catholicism, which then proceeded to to slide post-council. And so I think that underlines that um, your numbers can look really good, whether it's your collections or, or your number of registered Catholics or what have you. And yet, if you're not deeply infusing people with the faith um, and the need for it, um, and making true disciples of Christ, then uh, the numbers can reverse themselves very, very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, we'll keep uh, tracking that. And in the, uh, I, I would just say, yeah, it it seems to me the great temptation is um, um, there. There is the volatility. It seems to me the great temptation is um, always a sort of. Um, it is important to sort of measure the, the, the life of the church in various ways to understand best how to sort of engage in the life of the church and what's happening in different places and pastoral strategies which come out of that and all of those things. But I think fundamentally, Ed, one of the things that, that, that you said ultimately points to the idea that um, to be Christians is to be at the cross and uh, to be at the cross is to have effectively just an, an entirely different set of, of metrics um, or an entirely different set of um, criteria to judge success because fidelity is, is the criteria rather than, um, effectiveness or, or these kinds of things, which, which can so often sort of become, um, in a certain way become idolatry. You know, when we sort of talk, when people sort of talk about, well, we need to run the church as a business and these kinds of things, what they're effectively saying is, um, we need to sort of supplant and not often by intention, I suspect, but effectively what they're saying is we need to sort of supplant the, the predominant Christian experience, which is, um, which is the passion with um, a, a sort of materialist view of the meaning of our activity, and when, when ultimately the meaning of evangelical act activity, if it's true that good seed falls on the, you know, that we don't sort of control where the seed falls, as it were, then ultimately the meaning of evangelical evangelical activity is in is in the sowing, and um, and and much of the rest is in the providence of God, and at the same time, um, I think I'm glad that that we're doing data reporting. I'm glad to, to understand these things because. Um, there is a lot that sort of within our control and, and within our sort of um, purview um, we can learn from and and, um, and make better judgments about and these kinds of things as well. So, Brendan, you are our, are you, would you like to play a game? Sure. I would be happy to play Thank a game. you. I mean, just thank you for coming on our show and thank you for talking about this stuff. And I want to talk about it more, but we're coming up to the end. So I think it is time 
to play a game. And um, you are, Brendan, our data guy. I mean, that's what what you are. You're the data guy. We'd like to think and, that that's um, how you think of yourself, too. We hope that that's how you <laughs> think of yourself. Your primary identity at this point We is, hope that's how Mrs. Hodge thinks about yeah. you is, hey, there's the data guy. Uh, you know, I need to run into the store. So for basically, you guys are the ones running the baseball team, and I'm kind of the nebish guy following you around, being like, "Well, well, actually, it's all about getting on base." Well, I think if if there's one thing that we learned from the you win. the 2000s, it's that that guy is the guy running the baseball team, and everybody else is just standing <laughs> around chewing tobacco, right? So we're the guys standing. Ed and I see it much more. I, as I only saw the, the movie. I don't watch baseball. So. <laughs> standing around chewing tobacco while you're the guy figuring out how the team's supposed to work. Um, but because you are a data guy, we wanted to ask you some questions about another data guy, um, namely uh, a beloved uh, a beloved character both in popular imagination and in our own imagination, um, Data from Star Trek The Next Generation. So um, we have for you, Brendan, a bit of a data quiz if you're ready for it. Oh, okay. So are you, you know, you're familiar with Data from Star Trek The Next Generation, yeah? Yes, yes. Okay, good. Well, I'm just going to ask you some questions about Data because you know a lot about data, and we'll see if that's actually true that you you do. I mean, we'll see how much you really know about data, as it were. <laughs> and um, to be fair, since you didn't have time to prep these, I'm going to give you – I'm going to make these multiple-choice questions. That I think they're pretty easy, but I'm going to make these multiple-choice questions, and you can always phone a friend and ask Ed to weigh in if you think that would be helpful, but I suspect it might I not. know a lot about Star Wars. This is going to be easy. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, so, Brendan, let's begin with our data quiz. You know, data, um, the played by Brent Spiner, an essential part of the Star Trek The Next Generation tableau, as it were, is famously not human. Um, is data a Vulcan, an android, or a member of the Borg? I don't know if he ever moonlights as a member of the Borg, but he is primarily an android, as I recall. Ding, 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 ding. Well done. You are, uh, you're moving right along. You know Question. a little bit about data. Yes. What is the difference between an android and a robot? I've never been clear on this. Brendan? Um, I don't know what the technical difference is. Uh, it seems like people use android to refer to a robot that looks more human-ish as opposed to like the moving arm in a factory. Uh, okay. But I don't know if that's a technical distinction. I see. Okay. And now that right. we have robots, most of our robots look like you know, vacuums or, um, you know, other kind of household tools rather than looking like a pile of, um, you know, a, a pile of, a, a pile yeah, of are those great. Have you seen the robot dog, uh, videos from that, uh, what place? Do you mean I think great. Those are terrifying. <laughs> I want to, every time I see one of those videos, I want to, I want to, I reach for my shotgun and just say, don't come near me. I, I, I did. I did see one which was being worked on for the department of defense, which had a, which was weaponized. So you're probably right in your instincts. Yeah, the dog I, was weaponized. Yes, yes, they no, the, mounted a weapon. It's a robot the dog. dog, JD. Yeah. Wow, I I kind of built a robot last night. Um, Sorry, da- what? My son Davy. Well, my son Davy, like after dinner, he he just asked me if we could build a robot, and I said I didn't know how to build a robot, and he said, "Sure, you do. Of course you do." And it was sort of very like kind of classic little boy because he went and got a bunch of cardboard boxes and foil, and we covered the cardboard boxes and foil, and we built kind of a cool robot, which. Uh, <laughs> I think that's basically the other, how the Doctor Who robots worked, right? I think I think that's exactly right. The other kids came down this morning from bed and they had forgotten about the robot and it was dark and, uh, you know, it was kind of dark in the living room when they woke up and he was just sort of standing there ominously because it's pretty tall and it scared the hell out of them, which was my favorite part, truthfully, of the whole robot, the whole robot. Now you, you just know, need a voice chip to you say should, You should get him to fix your car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, um... 
Um, you know, androids, which are more, which are humanoid robots, I suppose, um, surprisingly, one of the things that makes them like humans, I suppose, is that they can have a rank. Um, a, a, an android can fit into a hierarchical structure with a rank, which means, truthfully, that a human, you know, that, that somewhere in the Star Trek, the next generation universe is a set of humans who grumbled in the break room about having um, to take orders from a glorified vacuum cleaner. And surprisingly, we never really saw their their subplot. But is Data the android um, a lieutenant commander, a full commander, or a master chief? Oh. Um, I feel like the chief was O'Brien, the transporter guy. Uh, and Riker might have been a full commander. So I will go with lieutenant commander. Ding, 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 ding. You are two for two on Data, my man. You are. Ed, you look flummoxed by this idea. Um, I'm... Yeah, the idea. You, I mean, I, I find the idea of taking orders from a robot horrific. I, but I mean, you said that you know that you never see that on the show, and I'll take your word for it. But I mean, surely the entire premise of surely the as near as I've come to understanding Star Trek is its primary function, at least in the sort of more modern iterations, is it, it's the water that's being turned up to slowly boil the cultural frog. Like they want to, they want to get us used to terrifying things like. You're going to all take orders from robots one day. You're all going to get your food in pill form. You're all going to, you know, there will be a global government run by the United Nations. Like, this is all going to happen, but it's going to be great because people will wear tights. So it's fine. <laughs> sure, I think that might be true. But you think even if that's the agenda, you might see an episode where a group of sort of human insurrectionists decides they're not going to take orders from a robot and, you know, stages a somewhat a mutiny of data's department or whatever. And then by the end, they learn that. We're all kind of friends, and that robots are robots are just like us, or something. Like that. I mean, we're I mean, not, and they're not. No, no, I'm just yeah. saying. Okay, you know that's an interesting thing because now you mention it. Uh, Data was some sort of an officer, but I don't recall him ever actually commanding anyone. He just kind of sat at a console and tapped buttons really fast. Yeah, you know, for the one thing about Star Trek is that you you ha you kind of have to. There are so many officers on the bridge that you kind of have to presume that they're. I mean, and you sometimes see the guys sort of in the engine room, but even them, the the lowest sort of Star Trek guy you ever see is an ensign, which is a junior enlisted officer. You don't see the sort of, or a junior commissioned officer. You don't see sort of the huge sort of mass of, um, of enlisted men who are, you know, cooling down the flux capacitor or whatever it is that needs to They're be done. All, then, the, the thing is, this is, like I said, Star shooting Trek all is, the is from the latrines into space. That's they are trying that. very hard to to put a, a pleasant candy-colored patina on the coming dystopia, J.D. You don't see any of the rank and file because they're all locked under decks like some horrible <laughs> sweatship cruise Actually, liner. Yeah. yeah. No, they're all down there. They're not allowed to. They don't get windows. They're, you know, they don't allowed to, they're not allowed to mingle. They, they're probably Morlocks, J.D. They probably, you know, sort of, they, they live on the, the flesh of the officer class because, you know, they're not given any real food. It's probably closer to H.D. Wells than anything Every else. Every so you know, that's where probably, do you remember Ensign Crusher? He kind of disappeared for a while. Probably he was in the sort of the, the grip of the uh, of the enlisted men and the narrowly escaped or something like that. By yeah. the way, one other thing that you never see in Star Trek, just to sort of go to the point of um, of the way in which it's meant to usher in a new dystopia, is have you ever seen a chaplain in a Star Trek universe? No, because everyone in the future is an atheist, J.D. The closest that you come is Whoopi Goldberg. Remember Whoopi Goldberg kind of played a sort of clairvoyant counselor of sorts. And then so did the redhead Beverly Crusher. She was sort of like that, wasn't she? She was a I doctor, just... wasn't Oh, she uh, was. There was right. a there was a telepath as well, though. The curly haired girl. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I, I huh. believe that uh, one of Gene Roddenberry's specific things when he created the show was that uh, humanity would have outgrown religion by the oh, future. For God's sake. Um, I'm shocked. And th- they eventually moved on from that, I think, in the some of the later series. But that was part of the rule book, I believe, with the original series and uh, Next Gen. Yeah, it's interesting because probably the beginning they were imagining no religion. And then later they were imagining sort of um, uh, um, multicultural religious equality and, and sort of religious you know, tr- cross-religious friendship and these kinds of all these sort of ideals of the – of the 90s and the next generation. I'd love to see a Star Trek made right now. It's a militarized communist sort of, society, though, right? right? But wouldn't you love to see one right now that reflects kind of our perception about things in which just everything is awful and um, there's really no hope for the future whatsoever? That's Star Wars, right? Well, my understanding I was suppose. that's why they made Battlestar Galactica, but I didn't actually see that. Brendan, you said to us uh, before this, don't make any quizzes about 90s television because I don't know anything about it. And yet you're dropping Battlestar Galactica references like a boss. So I, oh, I, I, I thought that was I think you within the yourself. last 10 years or so, wasn't it? it may well I thought be. Battlestar I think Galactica was 80s. Battlestar Galactica. Oh, well, there was the old Battlestar Galactica, which, yeah, was maybe 80s or something. But they did a new Battlestar Galactica, which um, I think was supposed to be, you know, you, you know, when they relaunch things that they do the sort of dark and gritty remake. Yeah, I oh. think there was a dark and gritty remake of Battlestar Galactica that that people who are serious about science fiction were very into ten years ago or something. M- much like the dark and gritty remake coming up of Fresh Prince of Bel Air, which will be um, for people who are very very serious about nineties party rap, will be very <laughs> important too. <laughs> well, okay, this uh, is listen. actually working because you're centering in on one of the very few TV shows that I actually saw in the '90s. I mean, if, if you were ah, covering well, sitcoms, I didn't actually see any. So, we'll... <laughs> well, here's a little bit more. Uh, here's your next question uh, about our in our data quiz. Data, Lieutenant Command, Android Lieutenant Commander Data uh, has pale, pale skin um, intended to convey his androidness. That's how he has yellow eyes and and pale, pale skin. That's how we know he's not a, a person. Um, but Gene Roddenberry said. Basically, the the reason why that happened is because Gene Roddenberry said that when he created a robot for the show, an android for the show, he didn't just want to pile metal boxes on top of each other is what he said. He didn't want this sort of Danger Will Robinson kind of thing going on. Um, and, and they tried a lot of things. So um, a lot of different ways that they thought might make convey to us that data was kind of like us in all things but humanity, I suppose. And um, and one of them was they, they played around with the makeup for his skin. Um, when the character was being created – um, what other kind of skin was considered for data? Was it either bright pink bubblegum um, skin? Uh, was it a, a kind of metal mesh pattern, like chain mail, uh, effectively, kind of moving fluid metal mesh pattern? Um, or was it a, a, a changing palette of bright neon colors, um, kind of similar to the Skittles line of iMac computers that were popular in that very same time in the 90s? <laughs> um I have P- plasticine and I have no and, and idea. Um, Ed, do you want to uh, throw me a uh, lead weighted lifeline here? <laughs> I'm uh, I'm going to say pink. I'm gonna, yeah, I feel like they wanted little pink men running around. Bubblegum bright pink is yeah. indeed one of the things that they tried for data skin. In addition to um, shiny metallic skin like the Tin Man. Um, uh, and, and neither of those looked especially good on Brent Spiner. The pale, pale skin also did not look good on him, but among other things, he found it to be the least sort of difficult makeup to keep on for the hours that were required to shoot all of his data. Because he did still kind of have that look when he was in Independence Day as the crazy underground scientist, right? 
Yeah, you've got to figure the makeup artist was kind of doing an, an homage that you know, kind of an, wanted to make an allusion to his more more well known character. When, uh, whenever I see him all gussied up in the Star Trek makeup, I just think he looks like an exceptionally hungover Finnish person. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny because I would. I'm not going to get hate mail from Finns, aren't I? I right. suspect that exceptionally hungover is something that describes most of Brent Spiner's days these days. I know nothing about him, but uh, you got to imagine that uh, he he. He 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 doesn't anticipate another role like Data coming down the coming down the space. Probably island. not. Yeah. Okay. Last question. You have thus far, with Ed's help, gone three for three on Data questions, um, showing uh, that we have chosen the right Data guy for the pillar. But here's the last question. It's the one that separates the men from the boys, as it were. The big big Data from little statistics. Um, data has a pet cat. Oh, get of course there's a cat. <laughs> Is uh, that cat named? Uh, Felis Catus, the Latin name for a house cat. Um, is it named Garfield after everyone's favorite lasagna? Uh, uh, excuse me, everyone's favorite lasagna-loving smartass, Garfield the cat. Um, or um, it, it, in, a, in, a, in a stab at android-esque irony, is it named Spot? Um, I'm sure it's not named Garfield. Um, I'll go for Spot. Well done, Brendan. Four for four. You have taken care of our data quiz. Ed, tell him what he's won. Uh, my respect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not well, sure that respect is exactly what's due for recalling that much about Star Trek The Next Generation. But uh, we'll, well go with you, it. You recalled them all. Uh, you clearly know data better than, um, better than the average Android. Brendan, thanks so much for playing, and thanks so much for being on the Pillar Podcast today. Thank you. Sure. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And we are joined this week by Pillar Contributing Editor and Friend of the Show. Is that okay? I mean, can we say Friend of the Show? Sure. Friend of the Show, Brendan Hodge. See you next week. Hold up. 